want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 14 for our scripture tonight, the text of the message. Isaiah chapter 14. What a, what a beautiful and moving and complicated and amazing book the book of Isaiah is. The Puritans call it the fifth gospel because so much of the prophecy of our Lord and Savior, His passion, His work is there. The beautiful Christmas portions of Scripture, the beautiful Scriptures that speak of His passion are there. But here we find in the 14th chapter a very dark, dark place where the Holy Spirit pulls back the veil of the unseen for just a moment and allows us to peer into eternity past where we see a great conflict and where sin began. It did not begin in the Garden of Eden. That is the record of sin's beginning as far as humans are concerned. But but long before that day, and we know not how long before, but in eternity past at some point, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 14, verse 9, Hail from beneath is moved for thee, He's speaking here to this anointing cherub to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave. And the noise of thy vows, the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For here is the root of sin, the root of all sin. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will. Ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That Psalm's descriptive phrase of where God resides. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness? We live in a fallen world. All around us has been touched by the fall of Lucifer, the son of the morning. We see it as a place of beauty, but I I remind you this is a far, far cry from what our God originally created this place to be. But praise His name, it will be restored one day. I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. Thou hast made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of His prisoners. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider your word tonight, I pray that instead of looking at this historically, and somewhere else and someone else, that you would cause us 
by your spirit to look deep in our own hearts and see the, the root of all sin. Oh, Lord, help us by your spirit to see these things by examining ourselves and, Lord, appropriating the grace that you so freely offer. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The early church made a list of sins often referred to by people today. They look down their noses at anything godly. That have been down through tradition listed as the seven deadly sins. I would correct that and say all sin is deadly. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death. But they did make a catalog of sins. The seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, luxury, lust, anger, laziness, gluttony. Now you might see them arranged a little differently or titled differently, but usually always at the top of that list is the sin of pride. Nowhere do we see this so blazingly portrayed than the description of Lucifer in the text that we read. The angel of light, who because of his ruling, pervading pride, was expelled from heaven to become Satan, the devil, the prince the power of the air. There's so much mystery and secretiveness here. The scripture just declares what took place. But it's unthinkable to us that Lucifer began to reason there in the very presence of God, triune Godhead, and came to the conclusion by his own reasoning that God was not really God, but he was another created being likened to himself, one that could be usurped, one that could be have victory over, and one could, could rise above. How foolish that is. And yet, the proud heart of man says the same thing, if not in so many terms. I will exalt my throne. I will... I know more than, or better than God knows. I will make my own decisions. That, that Lucifer's sin was pride is not only clear in the text in Isaiah. And we notice there in verse 15, verse 13, five haughty I wills. I emphasize them in the reading of the text. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the throne of God. Unthinkable, isn't it? I will sit also upon the mount. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That Lucifer's sin of pride is is not only clear from this text here in Isaiah, but from the warning, amazingly, that Paul gives the church in selecting elders or pastors. And in those qualifications there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 6 he declares that a bishop or a pastor should not be a novice or a brand new convert do you know the reason Paul gives the reason lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation or literally the same condemnation of the devil in other words the sin that occasioned Lucifer's condemnation would overtake that new convert placed in such a a place of authority and of God's choosing. One thing is clear from our text. God will not tolerate pride in his presence. Have you noticed that? What did he do the moment pride entered into the sides of the north, the very throne room of God? He cast it out. 
There are three main Hebrew words used for pride in the Old Testament. One is arrogance, haughtiness, or or lofty thoughts about oneself, supposing one to be higher or better or smarter or whatever than than they really are. We really are a a haughtiness, an unfounded haughtiness. Uh, Lofty thoughts are majesty, pomp, swelling. We we often use the saying, don't get the big head, and that's the picture of that Hebrew word, swelling one's head, one's thoughts about themselves, inordinately so. It also has the, the connotation of presumptuousness. I should go first. I deserve the place of honor. I, I am the best in the class or on my team or in my department at work. I should not be overlooked. After all, I'm better than the rest. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words, one used figuratively, and it means to swell with smoke. It's kind of humorous, these words that where pride is taken from, to swell with smoke, or as, and this is the, the, the word used in 1 Timothy 3.16, not a novice lest he, be lifted, lest he be lifted up with pride, or to inflate with self-conceit. The other describes a braggart or a boaster. So we can deduct that one filled with pride would conduct oneself with a lofty air and and preoccupation with one's self and in doing so being lifted up above others in his thinking. The poet said, How baseless is the mightiest earthly pride. The diamond is but charcoal purified. The lordliest pearl that decks a monarch's breast is but an insect's sepulcher at best. You see how unfounded pride is? Pride is demonic, devilish. It is destructive. Eve's sin being tricked or beguiled by Satan, but Adam's sin, the Bible tells us, with eyes wide open. He desired to act independent of God, his creator, decided he could do so uh, without a problem, and willfully and willingly took the forbidden fruit. Adam knew exactly what the problem was and what he should not do, sinning independently and high-handedly against the revealed will of of God. It is said that in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16 of Uzziah, a king of Judah, greatly blessed of God, When he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. What a picture. Our hearts lifting us up to destruction. It reminds us of another portion of Scripture. Pride goeth before a fall. His heart, he was strong when his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple to burn incense, something a king had no authority or permission, or business doing. He transgressed the lines that God had drawn and designed for him. Do you see that God, it is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. He has made us in our gender, what we are, male and female. Those are restrictions, those are guidelines, those are the boundaries that describe us. He has placed us in certain offices or callings. Again, Uh, the description of God, the delineation of God of who we are. He has bound us to certain time periods. We we are born today. We've been called to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. We can live in the past or in the future, but it's a waste. We're placed here today, tonight, for this hour at this time. The book of Acts tells us our very race and our, the bounds of our habitation, where we were born, where we're from. As in the South, people are very proud about where they're from. What county are you from, is what the Southerners will ask. I used to wonder about that till it dawned on me one day that most of the counties had no major cities in them. The county itself was the major thing. So are you the lambs from Greene County, they'd ask? Yes, that's, that's the ones we're from. But pride of, of place. God has placed us where he allowed us to be born, when he allowed us to be born there, and, and to whom he allowed us to be born. Pride is the first sin in history of sin. We've seen it tonight in the, the brief description of where it began. Jehovah God showed his abject displeasure by smoting king or smiting King Uzziah with leprosy. In fact, leprosy is a sign of, of, of course, a, a symbol of sin in the Bible and specifically of pride. God often would smite those with pride who became, with, with leprosy, became lifted up with pride. We could say there is no sin so despised by God and so severely judged by Him in all the Bible. And, and listen carefully just to some verses of what the Scripture says. For example, in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Psalm 101, verse 5, Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off, or he, he keeps the proud at, at, at distance. Can you imagine that? What a picture that is of God holding off the proud in heart from him. We heard in the scripture reading tonight that the Bible says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The thing that will keep and separate us from God the dividing thing is that attitude of pride. Notice the bone-chilling words of Proverbs 6 and verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. That Hebrew phrase of emphasizing the horror of something. Six, no, seven. It's not that God is changing his mind or can't count. It's a, it's a thing of emphasis. And the last one that is added is worse than them all. The top of that list, the awful list, is a proud look. A look. God hates a proud look, the writer of Proverbs tells us, because it comes from a proudful heart and is absolutely unfounded in any of us. We have nothing to, to look down upon someone. We have nowhere, no lofty perch to look down in pride upon someone else. We're all sinners saved by His great grace. But behind that look is a world of iniquity that leads to the other abominations recorded in that list of seven. Proverbs 13, verse 10, Only by pride cometh contention. I can tell you how every argument starts. Why every division comes. Why every problem comes between a husband and wife or friends or parents or whatever the situation. Only by pride cometh contention. Contention. Do you know why? Because someone was not willing to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Let's, let's get this straightened out. But contention is an ongoing struggle because 
Pride will not allow the person to back down and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. What a powerful statement. Only by pride cometh contention. In the Hebrew, that means quarrels or strife or debate. Proverbs 8.13, pride and arrogancy and the evil way in the forward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone that is proud in heart is abomination to the Lord. You and I might choose other things to call abomination, but God says the proud in heart are an abomination to him. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A high look, a proud heart is the, is the light of the wicked is sin. Isaiah 2, 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of man shall be made low. Luke 1.51, He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The declaration of 1 John 2 verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. At the heart of worldliness is the sin of pride. If we summarize then these verses, and these are just a smattering of them, there's a catalog much longer than that. We've just looked just in a simple way at some of the verses. If we, though, just combine these verses, we could say the proud will not allow. The proud does hate. Pride is an abomination. Pride is the sinfulest of sins. And that the proud will be humbled and be brought low and that ultimately the proud will be destroyed. What a fearful thing that is. That when we think of the destruction of Satan, we, we read there his expulsion from heaven, but the writer of Isaiah intimates that he will one day be looked down upon by the entire creation. Did you see that in verse uh, 16? They that see that he'll be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit in verse 15. Cast into the lake of fire. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. Oh, what a career Lucifer has had. In his prehistory days, as we've looked at in a glimpse here, and then as he wages such warfare as the prince of the power of the air, even as we speak. And then as he rises to great power and authority at the end times, only allowed by God for a period of time. But there will come a day we read here in the scripture that all will look narrowly upon thee and consider thee saying is this this is this is the man and notice how even though he was a created cherubim he has been given a lower designation this is the man the one that caused the earth to tremble that did shake kingdoms it's almost like how could this be the one that reached such havoc Even Satan himself will be brought low, eternally low. Pride is at the root of our fallen, depraved nature. The old man is ruled by pride. But let us not fool ourselves in thinking for one second that the saint of God, those that are saved by grace, are isolated from it. In fact, I would submit to you that our biggest struggle on a moment-by-moment basis, is with this very sin. We see it quite on display in the professing church among believers. 
We have only to look to the early church to see very early on the sin of pride creeped in when in that great period of revival and the sharing of things held common to relieve the persecution and the the great poverty at Jerusalem, uh, believers began to give large sums of money uh, so that that the, the people could be fed, the, the feeding of the widows and so forth. And even Barnabas, that missionary companion of, of, of Paul, sold a portion of property and gave uh, it to the church. And, and no doubt, in that, that early infancy of the church, which we often think of being the epitome of what the church ought to be, and while it does is a pattern there, we see in the infant church, Horrible and despicable things took place, and I'm referring to the, the Ananias and Sapphira's inflated giving and lying due to their pride to be recognized and exalted in the church. Was not Peter's behavior in not willing to be wishing to be seen eating with the Gentiles? He would eat with the Gentiles when the dear uh, Jewish brethren were not in town, but when the, the pillars of the Jerusalem church came. Peter would withdraw himself from fellowship at the table with Gentile believers. So lofty a one is Peter. Such a a mighty preacher, himself a pillar of the church, was so grievous that Paul said, I had to stand Peter, withstand him to the face to point out his pride in refusing to eat with the, the Gentile uh, brothers, do you see the Holy Spirit records this for us to see how how despicable it looks in the eyes of God to look down on anyone for any reason? We have no reason to to behave in such a way. Will we not call Peter's behavior religious pride, which I would submit to you is the worst of all pride? We read about a leader of the church in uh, John's third epistle. His name is Diotrephes, and, and he's one of those, it's almost like the name Nero or Nebuchadnezzar or, or Jezebel or Delilah. There are certain names that have a stigma so attached to them that, that no one would, would use that name. You don't see it on the, the, the I have a book in my study of the, the, the most famous names of all times. James, by the way, that name has been down through the ages, right at the top of the list. I thought you'd like to, to know that, brother. But it has names, but you do not see Diotrephes on that list of of treasured names. The Bible describes him horribly. If you had to have your name recorded in the Scripture for all to see, you you would not want it described in this way when John writes that Diotrephes, who, by the way, loveth to have the preeminence among them, and his prating malicious words against the apostles, and taking it upon himself to cast those from the church fellowship which he didn't like. How how prideful can you get? What about the Corinthians? That blessed church, that amazing church. We've already mentioned that the fact that there was a church at Corinth at all is absolutely amazing. So blessed. They had some of the most illustrious ministers of their day to minister to their congregation. Apostle and then Apollos and others. They began to brag about their favorite preachers and gloating over their, their showy spiritual gifts and their so-called tolerance of, of open sin among them. It was nothing more than pride. One thing is certain, and that is pride is certainly subtle, isn't it? 
We might call it by different names. We even say there's a good pride and a bad pride, don't we? We, we may know what we mean by that. I'm proud of my, my, my state or my country or whatever it is, and we use it in a good sense, but or we think we do. I would say that pride predominates in the sins among God's people. And it is a sin that, that fools us. It's one of the most, uh, for lack of better words, deceiving of the sins. We may not realize or admit it in us when it, when it takes root or is seen in our lives or that it's driving us to do a certain thing or in a certain manner, but if we examine it in the light of the Word of God and under the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit, we'd see that it's nothing more than the horrible pride that we read about in these pages. Our Lord warns in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 against acting as the Pharisees who did all their religious deeds for one reason, to be seen and heard. And he said, take heed that you do not your alms, your, your giving, your benevolence, we use that word alms as any Christian service, be careful, take heed that you do not your alms before men. Now, we need to, and we recently studied the Sermon on the Mount, and it does not mean that we don't let anybody see us put anything in the offering plate, or we don't stand and sing, I wouldn't be able to be doing what I'm doing tonight. If you have to see me, I guess we could have a curtain up here, but that would be silly, wouldn't it? People go to extremes. But the motivation behind what you're doing to be seen, don't be careful that you don't do what you're doing so that people, the, 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 the thrill that you get or the pride that you get from being seen before others. It's one of those things we have to deal with very carefully. There's a false pride, which is really just as bad, where people try to play down their pride and, and take the other uh, route and try to act so humble that their humility becomes in reverse a pride. It's so subtle. It's so deceptive. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. How subtle pride is. And we can easily spot it in others, can't we? Oh, we are keen at denoting pride in other people. We're so good at it. We can spot it a mile away, but find it very, very difficult to locate it in ourselves. And why beholdest thou the mote, the speck that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eyes? That's almost a, a comical picture there, isn't it? walking around with a log sticking out of your, your eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. God sees it that way. That's why he gives us such an exaggerated, if you will, picture of it, that it looks in God's sight, the beam would be like a log sticking out of our eye. So ridiculous, so horrible, so, so wrong. Some believers, as I've mentioned unbelievably take pride in their humility. It's not funny, but if you think about it, it, it can be, which is a reverse or false pride. Some, to show that they're not tied to the fashions of the world, take pride in looking dowdy and, and like, that, like the fashion doesn't matter to me. They go the other extreme. Someone has noted there's a pride of face, there's a pride of race, there's a pride of grace, there's a pride of place, there is a pride in natural gifts, a pride in gifts of providence, and even pride in the gifts of the Spirit, if you can imagine. Often we see pride in, 
in speech. And I think one of the telltale ways that we can at least try to ascertain it in our own selves is by listening to our own speech. When we, in most of our conversations, hear the personal pronoun referring to ourselves most often in our conversation, we ought to look a little deeper and we may see the sin of pride. We often see it in in criticizing others when we seek to lift ourselves up in the minds of our hearers. We drag someone down to elevate ourselves. We can easily hear it in the Pharisee's prayer, which is such a clear an ugly picture of what we're talking about here. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. Can you imagine? The poor guy was there repenting and weeping his heart out before the Lord. Lord, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. Oh, how he's been brought low. What a despicable sinner he is. And I, I because I fast twice a week and I give tithes, bragging to God of all things about what we've done. Think of it, telling God how good we are. How could we even think of such a... See how pride blinds us, how stupid it makes us? We see the opposite in the publican's prayer, don't we? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He owns up to his sin. And our Lord's estimation that that man was justified, that God heard his prayer. And did not hear the prayer of the other. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven. But smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you. And Jesus says, I tell you. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. God is very gracious to us. He, he gives us his word and he, he gives us the discerning of his spirit to judge sin. And the, Paul told the Corinthians in the healthy life of a, of a church, and the reason we, one of the reasons that he's given us the, the means of grace, the Lord's table, is for a constant examining ourselves because he warns us of coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy fashion. We're all unworthy, but how we come and to examine ourselves. And he tells us in that portion of Scripture, if you would judge yourselves, God would not have to judge you. But if you do not, God will. He he disciplines his own. Fred Mitchell writes, The essence of sin is selfishness, and pride is the inordinate assertion of self. Pride is the old nature exalting and expressing itself. So wherever it appears, let the believer know that this is the old nature. It is a negation of the grace of God and a contraction or contradiction of the humility of Christ. Our Lord is the opposite of pride. The Bible describes him as meek and lowly of heart. I'm among you as he that serveth. Can you imagine the creator of the universe says this? I take the title of being among you as him that serveth. And he just didn't say it, did he? He lived it out in all of his earthly life, and especially in that graphic picture of washing the disciples' feet and then going all the way to the cross on our behalf. 
But because the sin of pride is so subtle, we must be on constant guard to, to pluck it up by the root as it springs up. I hate weeds. I'm a weed hater. And I, I, you know, I have a warfare against them. I love Roundup. And I, I know that there are some who criticize it, but to me, outside of Gorilla Glue, Roundup is the greatest invention on demand. I fix everything with one of the two, either Roundup or Gorilla Glue. I, I use Roundup instead of an edger. I, I use it in all manner of things and uh, to make life a little easier in, in keeping things neatly. But I know this, that uh, to get a weed, you have to get to the root of it, don't you? In the, the cedar, the spreading cedar out front, it's a ground cover that covers beautifully, but there's still the nut grass just finds its way to come right up of it. And because the cedar is prickly, sometimes I walk out there and I'll see something, and I just, I just suit and all, get right in the middle of it and start pulling it up. And the other day I was doing it, and I got some of that nut grass, and guess what? I pulled it up. And there was a little tendril, but I knew that it would be back tomorrow because I didn't get the nut. There's a little nut at the end of the nut grass. That's why it's called nut grass. And if you don't get the nut, the, 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 it's there, and it will, will come back very quickly. The root of pride is sin, and it must be killed. When we have dealt with it in one area, I have found it will spring up in another area. Uh, it, it, we have to be constant, on constant guard to, to pluck it up by the root as soon as it springs up. And when we've dealt with it in one area, we see it popping up in another area, unguarded in that garden of our hearts. I think there are three tests in closing tonight. I want to just give, I think I've given you a, an adequate history of it and a, a despicableness of it so that you will loathe it first and foremost in yourselves. We hate pride in other people, don't we? I mean, we despise pride but we treasure in our hearts because we see it as adjusted we justify it but there are three areas three simple tests and there may be a thousand tests but there are three that i think that will be helpful to us in in judging the sin of pride in our lives now i'm not to do that in your life because i'm not equipped but i can judge and pull up by the roots the sin of pride in Chris Lamb's heart. I think there are three tests or questions. We might put them in the form of a question that we can ask to determine pride in our own hearts. Are you ready? First of all, am I jealous when others succeed beyond me? Now, this is going to get uh, right where we live and right where we are. God called and appointed John the Baptist to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Uh, preaching repentance and announcing the coming of the Messiah, the, 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 the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after John's successful ministry, thousands were followed the baptism of repentance and, and submitting to, to his baptism. In John 3, verse 28, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He must increase but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. And he that is of the earth is earthy and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Luke three sixteen. One mightier than I cometh, 
the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Do you see that John had a position, and he had a right opinion of self and of his place? A lesser person would have pointed to the crowds, would have pointed to the applause and the, the people crowding to him, and have seized upon that and made himself a religious empire. But John the Baptist was careful to say, it's not me you're looking for. It's not me you came to see. It is the Son of God. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's ministry was short. He was used to prepare the way of the Lord. It's not the length of one's ministry. But it's being obedient to the Lord. and You see how quickly he was. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. That was a description of the lowest bond slave. The lowest slave that would untie the master's shoe. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to be the one who would take off his shoes. He lived out this teaching, didn't he? Amazing man. Our Lord said that none was born among men greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said of of John the Baptist, not me. What a, talk about compliments. Talk about something that you could be proud over. Wouldn't we be proud if the Lord said, there, that one is greater than anyone else has ever come. But it only abased John. I doubt whether he heard that or not. Jesus said it about him. He lived out this teaching, went in bonds, and some preached Christ out of, of contention. You know, the, the Apostle Paul said that nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind that each esteem other, other better than themselves. What a, what a tall order that is. Let everybody treat other people better than you would treat yourself. And he, did, he lived it out when, when he was in prison, and others used the occasion, as they often do when someone is brought low who's been used highly in the Lord's work. Paul said, well, let them talk, let them preach. At least Christ is being preached. Even if they use me and the, uh, the situation or the occasion of my being in bonds, let Christ be preached. Let us ask ourselves, can I rejoice in others' success and God blessing them openly while seemingly keeping me or you in obscurity? There's a little track, you may have seen it. It's called Others May, But You Cannot. It's a, it's a really thought-provoking track. And in that, it says this. Others can brag on themselves, on their work, on their success, on their writings. But the Holy Spirit will not allow you to do any such thing. And if you begin it, he will lead you into some deep mortification that will make you despise yourself and all your good works. Others will be allowed to succeed or having a legacy left to them, or, or having luxuries. But it is likely that God will keep you poor because He wants you to have something better than gold. He may desire to teach you a helpless dependence on Him, that He may have the privilege of supplying your needs day by day out of an unseen treasury. The Lord will often let others be honored and put forward and keep you hid away in obscurity because he wants to produce some choice, fragrant fruit for his coming glory, which can be produced only in the shade. 
I was reading a sermon this afternoon by Charles Spurgeon on the text. He often took the most obscure text to preach on. And I, I have on my book plate in front of all my books, When Thou Comest, Bring the Cloak in the Books. And I uh, have that verse there under my name. And I, I looked up that, he, he preached on that text. And is only in his inimitable way that the great apostle who had been taught at the feet of Gamaliel, Paul came from an illustrious parentage and background of great privilege. And Spurgeon intimates that he had at one time been very wealthy but had released all of that to the glory of Christ. That, that He went on to say that Paul had to have been married. No one rose to the position of the Sanhedrin that he did, and with it, he went on to describe that, but that his wife must have died, and that he was a widower, and uh, had been reduced when he's riding in that dungeon, that prison. His cloak was some 600 miles away. And he said, bring me my cloak and my books all the possessions he had on earth could be put in that verse. He had risked it all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether by life or by death, but by, that Christ be glorified. All had turned against him. No one was with him. There in that cold, dark dungeon, he asked for his cloak. Can I rejoice when others surpass me and the Lord uses them above me? Can I not be jealous of others? Well, that's something we have to deal with on a daily basis, and I'll hasten on because we could think about that for a while, couldn't we? Secondly, let me ask this question. Can I accept rejection? Now, we're asking ourselves how we can denote pride in our own lives as if we needed questions at all. I think it's pretty obvious, but these just kind of pinpoint it, doesn't it? Can I accept rejection? King Saul, ruled by pride and jealousy, envied David for his gifts and his favor of God. And when we envy someone that way, it puts the person in a helpless situation. David did not call himself, did not equip himself. He was absolutely blessed and brought to the kingdom at such a time and enabled by God to do what he did. He was not in competition with Saul, and often that is the case. Saul's pride kept him from obeying the word of the Lord and killing Agag. He was told very plainly what to do, but he decided that he knew more than God. And we often, when we sin, that's what we do. We decide God may have said it, but he really doesn't mean it or it doesn't matter, and I'll have my own way. And so he spared Agag, trying to save face before the doomed king and was trying to have political allies. Samuel had to tell Saul, rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. We wouldn't put stubbornness on that same level, would we? Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. You see, when you, when you sin, you put God's word aside. And say, well, I don't, it doesn't really matter what God's word says. This is me. This is now. We reject the word of God. Because you have rejected the word of God, he hath also rejected you from being king. Do you know that Saul, by that one act sealed his doom as far as the kingdom being taken from him. That sin of disobeying the Lord in that specific command, 
Because of this, Samuel told him, God has rejected you from being, you've disqualified yourself from being king. And it's interesting to note that God didn't remove him immediately, did he? Instead of thoroughly repenting, though, Saul went deeper and deeper in his pride and rebellion. Rebellion is pride out in the open. You see, there's a, there's a pride that's dressed up and looked at in other ways, but when it becomes rebellion, it's just pride out there for all to see. I don't care. I don't care who you say or what, who you are or what you say. Sometimes our advice or counsel or preaching is rejected. Ahithophel could not bear it when Absalom did not listen to his counsel and, and he went home and hung himself. Sometimes we are passed over for an appointment or an office. I should have gotten that. I'm just as, I'm just as good as that, that guy is. One of my favorite commercials, remember years ago, there was this guy, he's complained to his boss, why did you put Fred at the window? He's so dumb. He's so stupid. Why would you put Fred at the window? And the boss said, because he's my son. That's why I put him at the window. And the guy said, did I say stupid? I meant stupid in a good way. How do we respond to rejection? Sometimes we're passed over. And it doesn't seem right. That guy can't do anything. I can do a better job than he does. But we forget that that God has a reason, a way, a, a something He's doing in our lives. Remember our Lord was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His birth was called into question constantly. His actions and motives were despised. He was looked upon by the religious leaders as a heretic or a crazy person. Paul had to constantly defend his apostleship before uh, others due to destructive words of the Judaizers. Sometimes we're rejected because of our person, whose we are. And I think that we as believers may be entering a time where that's going to be more and more the case because who we attach ourselves to, whose we are, we will be rejected. Sometimes we're rejected because of our position our stand upon the Scriptures, and, and that as well will separate the men from the boys, the, the, the true professors and possessors into those who just like to talk about it. Or because of our priorities. Believers are people, true believers are people with priorities. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we're told. A third question we should ask, Am I jealous of others when they succeed above me? Can I be rejected and leave it with the Lord? The third question that we'll close as we ponder tonight. How do I respond to criticism? It is impossible to live a working, productive, serving Christian life without criticism. It's absolutely, if you think that you can live life without being criticized, then you don't know, you don't know anything. All motives will be criticized. Our, our way of doing things will be criticized. It is a part of being a human being. And most people don't like it, but it is part, especially part of living for the Lord and serving the Lord. Sometimes our motives are criticized. He just did that for this reason. Paul was constantly accused of being, being in the ministry for money. And uh, it's, it's humorous. He's writing for his cloak and his books. That's all he's got. But yet he's in the ministry for money. Uh, he 
went out of his way. He taught that it is right for those who serve the Lord publicly and who minister the word to be supported by God's people. And yet he himself put himself outside of that number and was a bivocational apostle. He made tents. Can you imagine and picture Saul, a Paul sowing with callous and bleeding fingers into the, the night, the midnight. He would go to a city, and in all those cities there were trade guilds. And those of like trades would meet together. That's where he met Aquila and Priscilla. They were co-makers of tents, and they had a strong camaraderie. And they would sit, he would preach and minister through the day and disciple and do the work of the ministry. And by night, he would meet with others like Aquila and Priscilla. And tent making was one of those uh, jobs that you didn't have, to, it was not a lot of, you didn't have to have, have a lot of tools. And you could even borrow what you needed, as he probably did, uh, to make his living. He was chargeable to no man, he said, even though he had every right to be supported by the Church of Christ. Sometimes our method is criticized. Again, Paul's ministry was called into question in 1 Corinthians 4 and other places. The way he ministered was called into question. He writes in Philippians 2, Let nothing be done, don't, let, let, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, in other words, only, but every man also on the things, the affairs of others. Others' lives are just as important as yours. Let this mind, this attitude, this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or it didn't matter what people said, he so wanted to redeem us that he laid all that aside and took upon him the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men. Can you imagine the, the, the uncreated creator limiting himself to a human form like ours? No, can you imagine the one who spoke the world into existence allowing himself to become an infant What limitation, what condescension. I heard J. Vernon McGee one time give the illustration, and it's a feeble one, but it does give room for thought. Could you imagine one of us volunteering for any reason to become an insect for science or if it would cure disease or, or whatever? Could you imagine limiting yourself, going through, allowing yourself to becoming an ant or a roach or some creature. I don't know if anybody on earth, if it would cure cancer, would do that. And yet our Lord limited himself to a body like as ours, pain and suffering and anguish. He humbled himself. The opposite of pride is abasing oneself and became obedient. How obedient was he? Unto death, even the death of of the cross. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Charles Wesley wrote, I want a principle within of jealous godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or fond desire to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. That I from thee no more may part, no more thy goodness grieve, the filial all, the fleshly heart, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh and keep it still awake. If... To the right or left I stray. That moment, Lord, reprove and let me weep my life away for having grieved thy love. Oh, may the least omission pain my well-instructed soul and drive me to the blood again which makes the wounded whole. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we've traced the, the history I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves. We as your people talk about revival and long to see you work in our midst. We say, and yet the first order of business in sending a revival would be to deal with with my pride. Some of the very ones that, that pray for revival would never go to someone and admit wrong or repent of sin or ask forgiveness or seek restoration or reconciliation. And Lord, the only one that can can show us these things would be you. And so we come this evening as your people. At At the beginning of a new week and at the end of one that it's been unprecedented as far as the far-reaching results of what may come to pass. Lord, we just want to say as your people, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We marvel at your grace, that amazing grace that has taught our hearts to fear and brought us to repentance and faith in you alone. Lord, we cannot look down our nose at others Because that grace is all from you. It's a gift. The gift of repentance was given at your hand. We were dead in trespasses and sin. When you aroused within us the fear of hell and of your displeasure. And showed us the glory of our Savior. And we we repent, Lord, of our unrepenting tonight. We repent of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Lord, in the quietness of this hour, we ask that you would search us, O God, and know our hearts and try us and know our thoughts. And make us, Lord, repentant. Make us to see your glory and your grace. And as their early church was noted by their love for one another, may that be what is known first and foremost about us. Let each of us look upon the affairs of others. Lord, we've studied 
our statement of faith and that, that covenant that, that we covenant together as church members to look after one another and bear one another's burdens and weep one another's tears and, and look and watch for one another's souls. Lord, would you show us any and all pride? And I pray you'd start with me. And Lord, we realize this is not just a one-time thing. It's, it's a moment by moment, day by day dealing with and rooting out that root of the weeds of sin and dealing drastically with them. Oh, Lord, bless us. We pray, but we know that blessing comes only from obedience. And help us to be obedient in this area. We pray in Jesus' name.